0: Jesus comes to Jerusalem as King. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and once you will find it and once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah. Tell Zion's daughter, look, your king's on his way, poised and ready, mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus mounted. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem the whole city was stirred up and asked, What's going on here? Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the loan sharks and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house was designated a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. When the religious leaders saw the outrageous things he was doing and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus, have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. Fed up, Jesus turned on his heel and left the city for Bethany, where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. And the next reading is from Romans. And inspired by this passage, Johann Sebastian Bach wrote, a great Advent song called, Sleepers Wake Up. Uh, And Paul says, and do this, that's love one another, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. These are the words of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Graham. You've given me 20 minutes. See what I can do. It's great to be with you. My name is Rowan. Um, As Andy said, I come from uh, the Garrison Church, who sends their greetings. Uh, It's a delight to be here, though, with you. Uh, Keep that passage open as we will refer to it this evening. G.K. Chesterton, who... It's around the turn of last century, he was a journalist uh, in London and he wrote uh, this phrase. He said, The world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. The world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. Do you know how you feel as you hear that? Uh, whether that perhaps describes you uh, this Advent season? Advent means coming. Uh, It's the time where we celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus. And perhaps it's been a big year for you. And as you consider uh, this time again, it just seems to have repeated itself that the wonder of Advent might be lost on us. Um, It's been interesting. There is a campaign, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, on billboards and, and bus stations called Look Up. Uh, and the idea is is that most of us are looking down at our phones. Uh, we live just above here, and my kids overlook Jamison Street of an afternoon and the line of people going around the corner for the bus. Uh, and They call them zombies because they're all sitting there, fixed on their phones. Uh, this Campaign Look Up is an effort to get people to smell the roses again, to look one another in the eyes, uh, and it turns out, apparently, it's good for us. Um, and it's hard, isn't it, though, because we live in a world, particularly as we uh, engage in this modern world with the technology and, and all things so easily accessible for us, we're, we're kind of thrown wonder after wonder wonder after wonder, and it can leave us just feeling a bit numb to, to wonder. And it's like that with Advent. As we've said, it can be that we go through the church calendar, uh, we come to this time of year again, and we're just feeling a little dry, Uh, Well, hopefully this month, uh, as we consider Jesus again, uh, we can reawaken wonder, that we can marvel afresh at the good news of Christ's coming. Advent is a celebration in the calendar, it's the start of the church year, calendar year, Uh, and and today we're looking at two passages which were chosen from the, the, the Book of Common Prayer, so they were chosen over 400 years ago, uh, and so churches have been reflecting on these passages uh, ever since that time. And they speak about Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, that might seem odd, because in one sense we think, well, this, this event is tied up with his death and resurrection. Shouldn't we be doing this at Easter? But yet it speaks of his coming. It's the coming of the King. And so as we consider uh, Christmas and Advent and Christ's coming... This is a great place to start. The collect, uh, the prayer uh, for Advent speaks about two kinds of comings that we see. We see Jesus come in humility, but he also comes in glorious majesty, uh, in judgment. And in this passage, we kind of get the melding of those two comings. So hopefully as we go through, it can be an encouragement to you. It can help us to look up, as it were, to see and behold Christ in his glory and be taken with him. Well, as we begin, I don't know if you notice, but in this first reading, as you go through, uh, we, we, we see the arrival of, of royalty, Jesus, coming into the city of, of Jerusalem. I lived in the UK for, for nine years, and so that meant I got to see two royal weddings. Uh, and... The Brits love a royal wedding. Uh, It's got massive media coverage. You get the royal processions. You have the crowd-lined streets. You have the union jacks. You have the shouts of excitement. It's the kind of scene we get here on Jesus' arrival. We see that the crowds are there. They've cut off branches for trees. They've laid them down. They've laid down their cloaks. They're welcoming the king into the city. Now, with with the kind of British coverage of a royal procession or, or at the wedding, you, you didn't get a description in great detail about the Queen's driver and where he picked up the keys for the, the Rolls-Royce from. doesn't usually spend much time doing that. But in this account, actually, as we look about Jesus coming in to Jerusalem, we, we see that the mode of transport gets a lot of attention in these early verses, in these first 11 verses, The donkey and Jesus riding on it features again and again and again. And as we read Scripture, particularly as we read smaller sections, if you see a repeated word or phrase, usually that's significant. It's the author intentionally trying to ask us the question, well, why is he repeating this? And so here we get that uh, Jesus will ride into the city. The donkey features. It features in verse 2, in the instructions they're given uh, features in verse 5 as uh, the disciples go and, and get the donkey. Uh, we hear of Jesus sitting on the donkey. The donkey is brought to him in verse 7. And then we see him riding into the city. So the, the donkey is significant here. Why is that? Why does the Lord need a donkey? Why is it significant? Well, Jesus doesn't elaborate, but it's, it's a bit of a dramatic parable for us. Jesus is trying to show us, something. And he lets the prophet do the explaining for us, the prophet Zechariah in this case. See, we are told that these events took place to fulfill the prophecy. Zechariah was a prophet in the Old Testament. He was speaking to Israel post-exile and it pictured a coming king in the future. In chapter 9, we see here in these verses... It says, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Zechariah is giving them a clue of the coming kingdom, and the coming king. And then chapter 14, he speaks of this being a divine king. And so Jesus here is, is sending a message to Israel. Zechariah, in one sense, is like this little checklist of the picture of the coming king, and then and Jesus, in the events And the way that things go and play out in this passage is is ticking them off, as it were, one by one, to demonstrate that he is this coming king of which Zechariah speaks. How do we see that? Well, he is in the right place. Daughter Zion, that's another name for for Jerusalem. In Matthew's gospel, uh, the events turn around Jesus setting out for Jerusalem, where he will go Uh, Face his death and what we know, his resurrection. He sets his face towards it, knowing what was to come. And here we see that he is lowly and gentle riding on a donkey. He's on the right animal. He's gone to great pains to demonstrate that. And he's demonstrated that he is this humble king because Jesus sat on this donkey. He's humble and lowly. And then we see that the crowds offer him the right response. They speak the words of Psalm 118, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So if Zechariah set up this little checklist of the future king, as Jesus uh, comes into the city on the donkey, it's as if all these things have been lined up and he's ticking them off one by one. The message that Jesus is sending is that he is this humble king who is coming to bring peace, who is coming to save. Now, that might not mean that they expected such a king. In fact, Jesus coming lowly and gentle on a docking was probably the least thing that they expected. Apparently, Alexander the Great... Uh, came into the, the city a few centuries earlier on a war horse. When we think about displays of, of power, we tend to think of kind of entries which are impressive. It's not like we could imagine the Queen arriving to Will and Kate's on a tricycle. But to come into Jerusalem on a donkey was to demonstrate real humility. But actually that again filled out the picture Jesus is the one who comes in humility as king to save a people. And we see that the people are stirred. They're amazed by this. Now, what can we take away from this? Why why is this marvelous that Jesus comes in humility? Well, it gives us a picture of his saving work in salvation. See, here we see Jesus humble himself. He straddles over a slow, dirty, undignified and unpretentious beast into Jerusalem. It's a picture of what he he has done in salvation. Jesus, as Philippians 2, although equal with God, became man. He became a servant. Became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We see Jesus humble himself. And this is a picture of it. And like the picture of his birth, which we celebrate at Christmas. His birthplace was dirty, undignified, and unpretentious. It was an animal stable. So to our world, this looks as weakness. But these images work to demonstrate God's power in salvation, the God who would, in the person of his Son, assume flesh and dwell amongst us in order to save us and to bring peace. And that is marvellous news. But just as a, as a way to, to think about how we can apply this even as we, we move through, Jesus' pattern is suffering before Glory. It's humility before glory. And when we die to self and, and, and seek to live our lives as his disciples, that's what he calls us to. In the Gospels, he speaks of our, our losing our lives in order to gain it. In James, it speaks about we needing to humble ourselves so God would lift us up. That's the pattern of the Christian life as we follow Christ. And that's the pattern that our Savior demonstrates. And that's a picture of what we see here. Of a humble king coming into Jerusalem to save and to bring peace. But the people's expectations might have been different in terms of what kind of king and also what kinds of things he would do. They thought that he would bring relief to oppression, perhaps that was political or military kind of power to demonstrate freedom and bringing freedom and peace but actually what Jesus does is he comes and dies. But in doing so, he has victory over a far greater oppressor and tyranny, that of sin, evil, and death. So he is the king who comes in humility to save and to bring peace. But as the the prayer uh, in the Book of Common Prayer speaks about, he's also the king who comes in glory. And that's what we see in this second half I don't know about you, but as you read through it, they, they kind of don't seem to match. Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey, and then suddenly he's, he's in the temple. And then there's this event where he, he, he curses a fig tree, and they seem a bit mismatched and odd. From the other Gospels, we know that Jesus, uh, the chronology of these events is that Jesus, likely the next day, enters the temple. And the scene we see there is that Jesus... Far from seeming gentle and lowly, he's, he's furious. He comes into the temple and he sees the money exchanges and the sales that are happening in the temple court, and he flips the tables, kicks over the benches, and he brings the whole trade to a standstill. And then we see the next day, in a, in a, in a similar way, he, he curses his fig tree because it doesn't bear fruit. How do these things fit together? How do they give us a picture of the king who comes in glory? Well, I think it gives us, in a similar way to the first half, a dramatic parable or a picture of Jesus' second coming. So As his first coming shows, he's coming in humility to save. This one shows a picture of Jesus in glory when he will come in judgment in the future. And again, the quotes from the prophets help us to understand this. When Jesus comes into the temple and he sees the trade that is happening... He is furious, and he quotes the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah 56.7. Isaiah tells us what the, the temple was meant to be. It was meant to be a house of prayer. The temple was meant to symbolize God's presence amongst his people, but they were open doors. The nations were to come into the temple where they could experience the presence of God, be part of his people. But here, because of the money changes and the things that were happening... Those who were meant to be included were excluded. And so Jesus, in his fury, flips the tables, but he also says what it has become, quoting the prophet Jeremiah from Jeremiah 7. He says it's a den of robbers. And it gives us a bit more insight into what has happened. If you read Jeremiah 7, it's, 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 a, it's a prophecy, but it's speaking about... Judgment upon those for whom are not living as God has called them to. Uh, so, leaders of Israel who, in their lives, and and uh, they they look impressive, but actually their lives don't display uh, the glory of God and and what they should be doing. They're they're hypocritical, and so Jesus' beef here is not so much commercial, although potentially that's part of it, but it's actually he's more concerned about what's happening in their lives. He's not as concerned about what's happening in, in the temple as much as what it reflects. It's a symptom of the poor fruit of their hearts. There's a mismatch between appearance and, and reality. And In this section of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is addressing the religious leaders. He's calling out hypocrisy. And that's where the image of the fig tree comes in play. See, the fig tree was a symbol of, of uh, the Israelite people, or, or the temple and religious leaders, and, and this tree it looks leafy and it looks apart, but actually it's not producing any fruit. And so, what does Jesus do? He judges it, he curses the tree, he's calling out hypocrisy. And the fig tree is a picture of the future judgment when he comes in glory. And in a sense, it's a, it's, it's a compassionate. Moved by Jesus. He judges the tree, not the people uh, because there's a sense in which it is functioning as a warning for them and for us. So we see that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem in humility as a king to save but also we see a picture of his future coming in glory when he will come to judge. Well, how are we to respond to this? We see how the disciples respond. We're told they're amazed, or the ESV or KJV speak about, they're marvelling. They've marvelled before in the boat, on the waters, as the storm was raising, raging. Jesus calmed the storm. He showed his command over nature and calmed the storm, and, and the disciples were amazed. They marvelled. And in a similar way, through the Gospels, you see that Jesus uh, also heals the sick, he raises the dead, and people marvel in response. There's a right sense when you encounter Jesus, the right response should be wonder, we should marvel. But here too, in this passage, particularly as they marvel, there's, there's a hint of perplexity to it, because the disciples are still working everything out. For you to read on in that passage, Jesus speaks about them of having little faith and goes on to speak about prayer and that they need to pray without doubting and what believing prayer looks like. It's a call for them to trust in Jesus. And so we see their response. It's appropriate to marvel, but we see another response which is modeled for us and is an example for us, and that's the response of the children One of the delightful things about kids, but also equally terrifying, is that they repeat things, Uh, things that they hear. They will bring up in other contexts, Uh, which can be sweet and beautiful, but yes, at other times, not so much. But uh, it's a delightful scene when you see your kids kind of, you know, when they're not self-conscious and they're just playing with Lego and, and singing a song that they might have heard. Uh, It's a delightful little picture. And Jesus has entered the city to the accolades of the people, singing Hosanna to the Son of David. And then on the lips of these children are these very phrases repeated in the temple. And notice how the religious leaders respond to these, these wonderful things. And these wonderful things include the healings that Jesus has done in the temple. They were indignant And so Jesus responds to them with the words of the psalmist. Psalm 8, from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. It's a picture of a wonderful spiritual reality. See, these religious leaders were were like the fig tree with many leaves but no fruit. But actually, it's the children who who truly see and are producing fruit. These religious leaders were perceived as wise and knowledgeable, but actually they've been exposed by children and infants and the praise from their lips. As we read through the Gospels, we, speak, we, we hear of Jesus often speaking about his, his come to establish the kingdom for such as these uh, in Matthew Uh, One commentator just speaks about the way in which that that children were present in the temple was significant because they were the least of these in that society, but that they were speaking these words and that Jesus points out to them the wonder of it. It's demonstrated as a response for us, their humble, beautiful lack of self-awareness, their lack of scepticism, repeating a rhyme. And we're told in the Gospels to embrace the kingdom with that childlike trust and faith. Childlike marvelling. How do we do that, this Advent? How do we put some things in place to help us marvel rightly, to respond with a childlike faith in Jesus, the coming King who came to save, but also the one whom will come again in judgment? I think that's where our, our second reading taps into us with our call to to wake up. Theologian Kevin Van Hooser writes this, "'Disciples cannot afford to sleepwalk their way "'through everyday life. "'Disciples who are awake to reality "'have their attention fixed on the only breaking news "'that ultimately matters, "'namely, the news that the kingdom of God "'has broken into our world in Jesus Christ. "'This breaking news demands our sustained attention "'and a wide-awake imagination.'" Where to wake up from our slumber, or as the campaign says, where to look up and to see and to marvel. What's interesting is this campaign, it's got a, a joined website to it, and it speaks about having certain nudges to help us in the day to day to look up and to engage in uh, contact with human beings and to, to smell the roses. And in a similar way, this Advent, perhaps we need certain nudges to help us to look up, to marvel at the King who comes in humility and the King who will come in glory to judge. Perhaps we could slow down and and spend time in His Word to reflect on the significance of Jesus' coming. There's wonderful free Advent uh, devotionals that you can come that can help focus your attention to draw you in, to drill deep and to, to slow down to see the wonder that it is that Christ has come to save. Perhaps you could meet with friends to discuss this and pray for a fresh awakening of the Spirit's work within us to behold Christ in all his glory. Another nudge we could do is is, is take the time to self-reflect. Jesus loves sinners and deals gently with them, but in the Gospels he's harsh on the hypocrites, isn't he? That's just a hard word and a sobering word, but perhaps a good word for us to reflect on our, our lives. Is there, is there a mismatch in what we believe and how we're living? It's an opportunity, again, to go to Christ, ask for forgiveness, and exercise childlike trust in Him, to clothe ourselves in Him, as Romans 13 speaks, and to live out that identity in our day-to-day And finally, perhaps we need to cultivate a childlike curiosity. One writer writes this, The wonder and merriment and raw enthusiasm kids bring to an otherwise mundane experience reveal the spirit that Jesus praises. This is childlikeness, not childishness. What if maturity handles the responsibilities of life with all their care and gravity that they deserve, but not at the expense of childlikeness. If you, if you play with a child, you know, if you flip them over or do something like that, they'll say, do it again, and so you do it again, thinking that they won't want it again, but do it again, do it again, do it again, and on and on and on they go, and it's this delightful moment where they this just, in sheer wonder, can just do something over and over again, but we are grumpy and old, uh, but perhaps Children should be our teachers in this. Maybe we should cultivate a childlike curiosity to to see the wonder afresh, to have a hymn close to our lips of Christ's coming, our humble King, to entrust ourselves to Him like a child and to wonder anew. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this picture of the coming King that we see in this Gospel reading, the King who comes in humility to save and to bring peace. We thank you that this King not only took on human flesh, but was obedient to death on a cross so that we could be forgiven, restored and reconciled to you. What marvellous news, and we pray that we would this Christmas, again, marvel afresh at this. Lord, help us not to be as the religious leaders, indignant or dull to the reality of what is happening or has happened in the Lord Jesus. May we, with childlike trust, wonder afresh at who Christ is and what he has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray.
0: Amén.